Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mike Lanza about his book, Playborhood, Turn Your Neighborhood into a Place for Play. Mike, welcome to the show. Hello. Mike, I was wondering if you could begin uh, by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Um, I am uh, a... uh... I guess you call a serial entrepreneur. I've started uh, a five, and now uh, looks like I'm starting another company. So six tech companies. Uh, uh, the last four have been in Silicon Valley. Uh, not five, I guess. Um, and uh, I was born and raised in, if I go back to in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in the city and the suburbs, and had a what I would consider to be for the time. I was born in 1962. Uh, pretty average childhood, but by today's standard, uh, it would be uh, classified as a pretty remarkable childhood. We had a, a really uh, fun life. We played outside uh, pretty much every day. Uh, we're very independent, um, and uh, I try to hold those values in my in, in raising my kids today. So, how did you come to write your book, Playborhood? Well, uh, I was a you know, I was living in San Francisco, living the fun single life in San Francisco. I met my woman who became my wife. And uh, when we had, when we were, we were, she was pregnant with our first child, uh, I really started thinking about what childhood was like uh, in America for the first time since I was a little kid. Um, and uh, so I started, I was older. I, I got married at the age of 40. I was older and had a lot of uh, friends who already had kids, uh, so I asked them, you know, kind of nosing around about what their kids' lives were like, and I was totally shocked, totally flabbergasted um, to find that the kids, you know, one time a friend of mine said to me, kids don't play outside anymore, and, and I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I just thought, you know, that's what kids do, and that was, for me, the, the most important, that the best part of my, my childhood was not only playing outside, but in particular playing with no adults around. 
that's not to say that, that kids hate adults, but there's really something very valuable that kids get out of, of playing on their own. The, the independence itself is very important. Uh, so uh, when I made that realization, I just said, well, I'm, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I said, uh, I'm not raising my kids that way. I'm going to raise my kids the way I want to raise my kids. I'm going to figure it out. And um, I started nosing around, and uh, that led me to, to realize that, boy, this is not very possible, and maybe I have to work pretty hard. And, and if, once I do that, maybe I should uh, tell parents about what I've done to give my kids a life of neighborhood play. What steps did you take to uh, facilitate more neighborhood play uh, for your sons? Well, it started with a, a house search, uh, which sounds may sound kind of a, you know, a weird way to go about it, but I, but I realized that you know if if I just told my kids, hey, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to watch TV and play video games. You're you know, I'm not going to schedule schedule you with activities all the time. Just go out and play. If I just told them that living in the average neighborhood, um, they wouldn't have anything to do. It would be totally boring. It would be a total failure. So I realized that, you know, very early on, that I needed to figure out uh, where, you know, maybe find a, a place to live where we already had uh, and good opportunities for play. Um, and uh, that turned out to be extremely difficult. I, I came to the realization it's almost impossible to find a, a neighborhood today that is already um, – already uh, you know oozing with play with kids running around all the time um so i decided to find a place where you know that it had the had the potential for neighborhood play that it had lots of kids that has uh, a walkable uh, destinations uh not too many cars on the road um uh, that had a, a school, a good neighborhood school that a lot of kids walked or biked to. And that's what we ended up finding. So that's the first step is finding a place to live. Um, but I realize a lot of people aren't going to move right away. Uh, other things to do where you live are um, to try to, uh, you know, get out in front of the house, not in the back of the house, um, meet neighbors, knock on doors, uh, make your neighborhood into kind of a village, a place where you know the neighbors uh, you know their kids, they know your kids, and the kids know each other so that it feels comfortable. Um, and also try to make your your front yard in particular and make, uh, if not your front yard, a courtyard, uh, something very close to where you live, into kind of a, a neighborhood hangout. Um, it sounds like uh, it, it is forced. It sounds kind of uncomfortable for people who had hangouts when they were growing up, but kids don't have a place to hang out. And um, a, a book that I highly recommend, uh, it's called It's Complicated um, by Dana Boyd about uh, uh, teenagers' use of social media. Um, at one point, she, she states very plainly uh, over and over again, I asked uh, teenagers, you know, uh, why are you going online and they said well we'd rather we'd rather have a physical place to hang out but that's just not available to us anymore so that's that's the reason why we spend so much time in social media so um giving kids a place where they can hang out um is, is very fundamental to, to their existence where they can just show up anytime uh, kind of like the cheers bar for adults 
Mm-hmm. You can show off and just hang out with other kids. Um, so those are some of the things that I've done uh, and, and write about in the book, Flavorhood. So it sounds like you need to be available and your children need to be available in the front yard so other people can see you and they'll approach you, you guys hang out, or the kids can play. Um, is there something physical that you can do with the space um, in addition to simply spending more time out there? Oh, sure. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for, the, <laughs> thanks for the leading question. There are fun- fundamental principles of, of placemaking. Placemaking has kind of a, become a science. Um, the idea is to make uh, locations in the places where people hang out and do things and socialize. Um, one, even for, you know, for adults and for kids, it's universal, is providing seating. So kids aren't always running around playing, and even when kids are running around playing, they're sometimes with their parents. Um, so just having seating uh, provides, you know, uh, it kind of makes that place a destination um, so that if there's a sandbox, if there's a something the kids can do, parents can sit down and they'll end up spending an awful lot more time there. Um, also having fun activities, fun things to do for kids, and not just one thing, but multiple things. I mean, unfortunately, it doesn't have to be expensive, but unfortunately, um, just having one little, little tight slide in front of a house, uh, it gets kind of old after a while, but if you have a few things to do, a slide, a basketball hoop, a sandbox, if you start to add a few things, it kind of, you know, you kind of, uh, you, 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 you hit the inflection point and it becomes a place that doesn't get boring after a while, that there's enough things to do, if there's enough fun things. And also you have to realize that if you, even though you might be targeting one age group, kids have siblings, kids have friends of different ages. So there has to be things for a diversity of ages. It has to be visible. The stuff has to be, you know, uh, you can see it from the street, uh, not in the backyard behind a big fence. It should be accessible, um, things like that. Um, and people have to be there. I mean, that's the fundamental notion is that, you know, to, to bring this full circle, you have all these facilities, um, you know, just the simple calculation. People have to feel like, well, what's the chances that if I walk out here on an average day afternoon after school that someone's going to be there? If the probability, if the possibility is 50%, 60%, that's pretty good. But if it's 10%, people aren't going to bother. They're not going to show up. So these are some of the things that uh, need to, to happen in order to make a real, real, real neighborhood hangout for kids. Now, uh, in the book, you describe free play as sort of a social problem. And, and you mentioned this earlier. You couldn't simply say to your sons, you know, uh, don't watch TV, go play outside. Because if there's no one there, um, you know, that's an unreasonable thing to ask for them. It seems like your children have to be at home more in order to use this space. But uh, they're, the kids that live down the street aren't necessarily going to stop signing up for karate or baseball or piano lessons. Um, so is that a challenge that you ran into? The issue of uh, other kids in the neighborhood, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, what we're trying to do, we're trying to change culture. And uh, that's always very difficult. Um, and when we first moved into our house and we played out front, literally every every uh, night after dinner, we were there in the summer. Um, you know, for the first few months, we were alone. I was with my two sons, and we were alone out in the street or out in our front yard. Um, and we kept knocking on doors. But at a certain point, um, people, some people, uh, I guess you call them the early adopters, start to to sense, hey, maybe this is something that I can do, and. Maybe we don't have to have the five days of scheduled activities after school every week. Maybe we can take one day off or two days off. Um, 
and uh, you know, there's some families will will uh, uh, start you know paying attention, maybe partaking, getting interested in things, and. Um, you know, we had, I could tell stories about, about some of our neighbors. We had one neighbor whose son uh, was totally, totally scheduled at four, five, six years old. Um, and uh, he loved to come to our house, but his parents didn't want him to. And then uh, after a couple of years of this, his mother finally realized, boy, he's learning things. He's being more creative um, at our house. He's building things. This is actually good for him. So she, she had to sort of compartmentalize hanging out in our yard is kind of an activity. She couldn't just let him do it. She had to think, well, this is as good as, you know, this activity or that activity. And um, it, it came to be that uh, from, at one point in the beginning where she prohibited him from coming to our house, she flipped that around and it became his reward for good behavior. If, if, if he was a good kid and he did the things they wanted him to do, he would be allowed to come to our house for an afternoon. Uh, so, um, you know, these things take time. It's cultural change. Um, but uh, we really have, I think, uh, made some uh, in- good impact on some of our neighbors where we live. So it sounds like your approach is, you know, you're trying to convince one family at a time to, to think differently about parenting. Um, but it's not just uh, parents who are sort of affected by a neighborhood change um, because you're, you're sort of transforming the physical space. Um, that's shared amongst different families that some who may not have kids anymore. And so I'm wondering, uh, did you receive any pushback? Uh, what has the response been um, to transforming that space um, just from the perspective of other adults? So we, we, um, we did have, uh, you know, my, one of my next door neighbors uh, said to me when he looked at my plans, he said, wow, that might lower my property value. Mm-hmm. And um, I went, of course, went home ahead and did what I was going to do. But uh, I think he's been proven wrong. Uh, you know, our our yard has become a destination for the neighborhood. Uh, our neighborhood is to some extent more lively because of what we've done. Uh, and his kids come over to our house uh, quite often. And, uh, by the way, we tell people, please come to our, our yard. And we tell not only parents with kids but other people. Please come and use it anytime you want. We don't have to be there. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that that one example, uh, you know, uh, he's, he sort of uh, changed his mind after we, we installed things and his kids have enjoyed our yard. Um, and I, I think that people are bothered more by uh, of the activity of our kids in front of our house than by the physical facilities. Physical mm-hmm. facilities, uh, it's kind of funky looking looks a little different, but people have come to embrace it and use it. Um, we've had, we've had, we had one, uh, older uh, woman in, in our neighborhood in particular protest that my kids were in the street playing and she didn't like that. She thought that was dangerous and, uh, kind of back and forth with her. And I tried to be as, uh, you know, try to be as attentive to her, uh, her concerns as possible. But at the same time, I was not going to keep my kids from going out on the street. Um, I said that we would have someone keep an eye on them uh, and try to be present. And uh, my kids have gotten older and more responsible, and we don't have people watching them anymore. Um, and uh, she's not as friendly as she used to be. Um, but uh, I believe that the streets are for people, uh, not just for cars. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's kind of the, you know, the price that we pay for, for what we're trying to do in our neighborhood. 
Now, have these efforts um, done anything to foster friendships among adults? So uh, do parents ever come with the kids and, and hang out with you? Do you meet more people this way? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we have one of our facilities in our front yard is a, a picnic table, which, you know, not unusual to have a picnic table in a yard, but to have it in a front yard where we live is pretty unusual. And... Um, we often will, you know, we'll, we'll sit outside, sit on the picnic table while kids are playing. Uh, we'll bring out a bottle of wine. Um, at parties that we have, we, we always have our kid parties at our in our yard. We don't have them in, you know, bouncy house places or gyms. We have them at our in our yard, and uh, it's a huge event for parents. We have a blast, and um, very often uh, it's kind of funny. We have a an in-ground trampoline in our backyard. And um, it's really fun for everybody, but very often uh, a parent will jump with kids on the trampoline um, under the guise of trying to show them a pointer. And at a certain point, you'll see adults take over the trampoline. Uh, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're kind of going crazy, jumping on the trampoline or, or climbing up the, the playhouse. Uh, uh, so, so very definitely uh, kids feel licensed to, to sort of uh, be playful and, and do childlike things. Um, but also to sit and chat. We have a lot of socializing at our picnic table. Um, it's very fun for adults as well. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about the difference between the play that's happening at your house and playdates when parents are arranging for one child to visit another child at home or traditional structured activities like organized sports or summer camps. What is it that kids are getting at your house or, their, or your playborhood that they wouldn't be getting in these other settings with other kids? Yeah, I actually have a lot of uh, history with the whole issue of play dates with my kids. Um, I've been always been kind of religiously against play dates. I, I thought, oh, that's a, kind of a ridiculous concept. Why don't kids just play on their own? Um, I, I did. My, my, my oldest son, who's now 11, had some particular issues, was not a, a good at playing with other kids, was not socially adept. And so um, his preschool teacher recommended to us directly, um, uh, Marco needs, needs play dates. He needs, uh, you know, planned play dates, supervised. Um, he was not getting along with other kids. He was mean to them. Uh, he was aloof. Um, so we did start having play dates, but our objective was uh, all the time, the whole time, for, for Marco to grow out of them, to, to have to graduate from play dates. Um, and, and the thing is, we have a great yard, so even though Marco wasn't that much fun to play with, kids wanted to come over to play in our yard. So um, we had lots of play dates scheduled for Marco. He had lots of opportunities uh, in preschool and kindergarten to, to play with other kids. Um, and But we kept backing away and sort of giving him more opportunities to fail on his own. Um, to the point where he, by, by second grade, we stopped planning play dates for him and he had to plan his own play dates, um, which was, which was interesting because he always had to negotiate with, a, with an adult, uh, to do it. Uh, now he's on his own in, in fifth grade, but, um, it's, it, you know, when, when you, when you plan your own, uh, play time, when you, uh, are administering your own activities, um, you're doing all sorts of things that you have to do when you're an adult, you're deciding what to do, you're, um, you're, you're, you're acting as a salesperson because you're, you're telling these kids or this kid, this is what we're going to do. Come on, let's do it. Let's have fun. Um, you're being a salesperson. You're creating rules. You're, you're figuring out the exceptions to the rules. You're 
you're adjudicating your own disputes, you're doing all these things that you have to do as adults, and you're doing over doing them over and over again as kids. When you're in an administered environment, an adult administered environment, you don't get that experience, and that's a huge issue. I think uh, a huge difference between free play and, and adult administered play. And, and intuitively, uh, that makes sense to me. I mean, um, if uh, if parents aren't around, kids have to make decisions that parents would otherwise make themselves. Um, in the book, you actually talk a little bit about um, the psychology and the research behind this. I was wondering if you could speak to those a little bit as well. The uh, father of this research is also the father of developmental psychology, John Piaget. Uh, he wrote a book. I think it's called something like The Moral Development of the Child, something like that. And um, he observed in the 1930s his son and his friends playing marbles uh, in, in Switzerland. And you think, oh, my God, how mundane could that be? Uh, but uh, he came to realize that, that wow, they, 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 were, they were creating a, a whole society and a social structure uh, just out of playing marbles. So they, they learned how to, um, you know, uh, create their own rules. They learned how to, how to deal with exceptions to rules. Um, they also had to create some sort of egalitarian framework where, uh, you know, if there was a kid who wasn't as good at marbles or was maybe, um, uh, you know, uh, had uh, some intellectual deficiency, um, they would create special rules for certain kids um, because they wanted uh, all kids to enjoy themselves. They didn't want, and they needed numbers. They needed lots of kids to play, not just a couple kids to play. Um, and that research has evolved, in, and people have written, and I, I think I cite in the book uh, an example of, of um, uh, uh, writing about Little League, how Little League is uh, so inferior to self-organized baseball. Um, of course, now it's almost impossible to get uh, a large number of kids to, to play a large game of sports, a football, a basketball, uh, a baseball game. So now everything is, is administered by, by adults in Little League and Pop Warner football, school basketball. And we really lost a lot, I think, because of that. You live in Menlo Park, California, um, but you've traveled to the South Bronx and to Portland and Iowa and Davis, California, and observed neighborhoods uh, there. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how these can take different forms. Yes, uh, I, I try to, you know, uh, make a, a more general point than just talking about my neighborhood. And, and uh, so, you know, on the one end of the, at least the income spectrum, uh, Menlo Park uh, is is a pretty very well-to-do place. The, the, the homes are very expensive where we live. Um, I also spent a lot of time in one of the poorest places in the United States, in the South Bronx, um, at a place called Lyman Place. It's a street. Uh, and uh, there, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, um, the kids' lives are very different. They don't have single-family homes. They all live in apartments. Sometimes, uh, very often on Lyman Place, they are, um, uh, their, their, their government, uh, you know, uh, uh, public housing, um, and uh, they don't have a yard. They, it's just a apartment building spilling out into the sidewalk and street, so they don't have the private space to make, um, you know, the, the neighborhood kind of hangout kind of place that I, I created. But a line in place, what one of the, the longtime residents there did was she petitioned the city of New York to create a play street. And um, so she's able to block off the street from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. during the summer every 
weekday and no cars can park there, no cars can drive through. And it becomes a really magical, wonderful place. Uh, it's a fantastic place, um, really warm, really fun. Uh, and uh, kids hang out and do whatever they want there every day. Um, there's a basketball hoop, there's a volleyball net, there's um, different uh, board games that the kids can play. Uh, and it really has a great vibe. Uh, another place that um, I really enjoyed uh, visiting was um, a place called Sherrod Square in Portland. Um, so there, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really, uh, the, the streets aren't blocked off, but residents there wanted, didn't, you know, didn't like the fact that people were zooming through their neighborhood, um, you know, and they feel like, well, that street is really kind of our street where we live. It's not just street that belongs to the people who drive through and the sidewalks and the berms. So they uh, painted a big uh, design, a mandala, in the pavement of the street, and they've been doing this for over 20 years now. Uh, and they also they also uh, uh, put different installations on each of the corners to kind of make it, and it really has the feel of kind of like a, a, a piazza in Italy, a place where people hang out and chat. They, they built a, a couch out of, uh, out of uh, renewable materials, called something called Cobb. Um, they have a solar-powered tea stand um, that if anybody can go and grab some tea, then they can sit on the couch. There's a kid's clubhouse. Uh, and it really is a, a great place. And cars, you notice, if you, if you spend any time there, cars don't zoom through. They actually slow down. They look. They dock. Uh, people walk there. It's a destination. It's a really great place. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's many other places I've written about in the book, uh, but those are two of my favorites. And so it sounds like these things can be done um, in urban communities, and they can also be done um, with a smaller budget. Uh, I was wondering if you could get, get back to something you were saying earlier about um, the kinds of decisions you were making in deciding uh, a neighborhood where you could move. So what are the factors that adults are normally considering when buying a house, and what additional factors did you begin to weigh as you made this decision? Yeah, I, I, re- I made a fundamental uh, real, a couple of fundamental realizations when I was looking to buy a home. Um, one is that the real estate industry, um, in their marketing, they, they always, they often show a picture of parents and kids and, you know, kids being happy. But in reality, uh, the real estate industry has really no notion of, of how to, how to, uh, help, help families buy a home. That, uh, that a family will be happy in, uh, in the context of a the neighborhood. They, they, they only, they're only concerned with what's in, within the four walls of the home. And so they're always marketing, you know, how many bedrooms, how many baths, um, you know, what kind of kitchens in there, but not about what the neighborhood's like. And so, and, 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 and realtors, I, I believe, are not really good at, at building neighborhoods. They're just good at sort of putting people in homes, which is very different. Um, and so, uh, I sort of uh, try to kind of reconstruct what I would do if I were trying to find a great neighborhood for my kids to live in. And uh, the quality of the house became, you know, it's still important, but it didn't become nearly as important as, as what, the, you know, what the neighborhood's like. Because, um, you know, sure, we need to have four walls and a roof and we need to have a kitchen and, and you know, a certain number of bathrooms and all that stuff. But um, if I want my kids to have a wonderful life outside the home, um, you know, that's very hard to come by. 
And so I started to look for things like, well, um, are there kids there? <laughs> the kids with it. That's, that was the most important thing to me when I was a kid growing up was were the other kids my age. Uh, and I'm a boy, and I wanted to play with boys, so other boys there. Um, if you have girl, uh, girls, uh, they would want to have other girls there, too. Um, also, uh, what's sort of the culture? What's the feeling of the neighborhood? Um, and and, and to, to learn these things, and, and also, you know, is it walkable? Um, are there walkable destinations? Um, are, you know, are, is there a, a good neighborhood public school? All these things. So what I did was when I was hunting for my house, I would, sure, I would look online and look at the photos of the houses. And, you know, I needed, I had a certain number of bedrooms and baths and price that I was interested in. But after that, I didn't really know about the neighborhood. So I would drive to the house on a neighborhood on an afternoon, a week, weekday or weekend afternoon. And I would park there and I would look around. I would look for kids stuff, what I call kid debris. I would knock on doors and I would talk to people. And 90% of the time, the neighborhood itself failed. It, it didn't pass my test. And so I never went inside the house. Um, and so I sort of flipped the, the house search upside down. And I spent most of my time looking for a great neighborhood because I already knew a lot about the house from looking online. And uh, through that system, through that through that methodology, I came upon the house we live in, which is not our favorite house. It's probably not even the top five of houses that we looked at, but it's the best neighborhood, and it's made all the difference. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about the intersection of your values and the prevalence of technology. Um, so how is free play different from allowing kids to direct their own activities in front of screens? Well, technology, first of all, you have to acknowledge, you know, in starting this conversation, it's not going away. We can't, we can't wish it away. Um, perhaps um, if we didn't have any television or any, you know, if we could turn back the clock 100 years, um, maybe kids would be better off, um, you know, without all these, these, these uh, what we consider to be distractions or interruptions. Maybe, maybe not. But we can't assume them away. So it's an academic uh, issue. Uh, but uh, I think that in particular, um, to the extent that technology takes our presence away from what's around us, and when, it, when, it, when it sort of takes us away from that, um, I think uh, that can be a big problem. And um, the statistics show that kids are spending, uh, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation, I don't know the recent, most recent study, but as of like four years ago, a study said that children were spending about eight hours a day um, consuming a digital media. Um, it's unbelievable. But, I mean, if, if they're doing that, then they literally have no time to do anything but sleep, go to school, and consume digital media. They don't have time to talk to each other. They don't have time to go outside and play. Um, it's, it's breathtaking. Um, having said all that, and I do think that it is a big problem. Um, there are ways to conceive of technology um, that actually complement our our uh, relationships with with humans in the real world. The complement our exploration of the real world. Uh, those are the kinds of things I've tried to work on um, in my life after writing the book Flavorhood. Um, and. Um, there are things about mobile phones that are actually good, mobile phones in particular. I think that television 
is not good for the most part. Um, it it encourages people to to be uh, to be passive and to not go out into the real world to not interact with other people. There are certain things about mobile phones that are great that they give us license to explore the world. They can even facilitate our exploration of the real world, and I think that's really good. Um, so it seems like you've attempted to create an environment at home in part so that your children can experience a childhood more like what you had. Um, so I was wondering in what ways has your playborhood been most successful in recreating Pittsburgh in the 1960s and 70s? Well, I guess I would point to my, uh, my oldest son's life today. His, his name is Marco. He's 11 years old. Um, Marco now at 11, um, at the end of the school day, it's three o'clock. He goes off on his own. Um, and he plays with his friends. He goes sometimes to our house, some often to other kids' houses, often to a skate park, uh, where he, he's really into scootering. Uh, and he shows up at our house at six o'clock every night for dinner. Um, what does he do during that time? Well, to some extent, I, I can, you know, I can tell you what he does generally. I don't know what he does uh, on an average day. Uh, I mean, excuse me, on, on a particular day. Uh, I don't know where he is on, at a particular time. But I can tell you that he's, um, he's, uh, you know, making plans with friends, coordinating with them. He's, uh, you know, creating um, games and and um, you know situations, scenarios. Um, so they're being creative, they're creating rules, they're having arguments, they're settling their own arguments, they're doing all these great things. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that pays off in all sorts of, sorts of ways. Um, he's much more socially adept. He actually did not start out being very socially adept, as I, I described uh, you know, before about his, his issue with, with friends and playdates. Um, he also... Uh, knows how to go to the store and buy things on his own. Uh, you know, a couple of weekends ago, my wife uh, asked me, "Hey, I, you know, I need some something so I can make omelets for the kids. Can you go?" I didn't have my clothes on. I didn't feel like going. I hadn't showered. There was Marco. He was, you know, he had clothes on. I gave him a twenty dollar bill, and he, I sent him on his way. He went to the grocery store, he bought stuff, and he came back. That's that's think that's something that most parents don't have the luxury of doing with their kids. Um, also, we can. We can go uh, off uh, one afternoon on a weekend, and we leave Marco behind. He doesn't even know where he's going, but he can. He has enough friends around. He has enough things he can do. He finds his way. He does things. He figures things out. Um, he's, he's very capable and independent, responsible. So um, I'm very happy that he's able to do that. And that's the kind of child. That's the you know the kind of kid I was as well. And it was kind of the norm uh, a, a few decades ago. There's no reason why kids can't do that. This is not. Uh, we, we shouldn't say that kids are not capable of these things today. It's that our culture has made them incapable, and so we've created another culture for Marco where he can do that. So when you you think about comparing uh, your childhood to your kids and what you're trying to do, certainly you're sort of limited um, by you know you can only do so much at home. What mm -hmm. what's been the the biggest challenge for you in terms of trying to give them the childhood that you want? Uh, it's other kids. It's, it's, it's other families. It's other kids. So, so Marco has found a group of friends that, uh, you know, to some extent he's influenced them to be more independent. To some extent, they're, 
you know, their parents were ready and their, those kids were ready to, to go out and do things on their own and be with him after school and go around without checking with parents all the time. However, my, my younger kids who are, and I think Marco's been very lucky. We've been lucky for him. Uh, our other kids, our eight-year-old Nico and our six-year-old Leo, um, haven't found those friends yet, uh, and they may not. They, you know, even when they're 11, they may not find uh, friends, a, a group of friends who is independent uh, uh, as them. So um, although Nico at, at eight can go to other kids' houses on his own, he can play with them, he can manage uh, his time to some extent, um, he doesn't have those friends. He doesn't have those, those kids. Uh, by and large, uh, he, they don't, we don't have. He doesn't have those friends right now, and um, so we're working on it. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, he's working on uh, some friendships that he has, um, and I hope that it'll come about. But it's really that's the biggest challenge: is finding other kids and other parents who are who are making the cultural change that we've made. And it's a, it's a lot of work to make that change. I was struck by the example uh, about your son taking the $20 and going to the store to buy eggs. If he's not accustomed to running errands like that on his own, uh, he, you can't just expect him to do that one day. Can you say a little bit more about um, how you worked with your kids to foster that kind of independence? It's, you know, it, it, there's sort of a simple mentality that you just have to try and repeat and try and repeat, which is, which is rather than just doing things for yourself, right? Rather than when you're with your kids, right? Rather than just doing things on your own, think about how can I, you know, push my kid a little further each time, and how can I back off a little more? How can I keep pushing the 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 uh, the edge of the envelope? It's kind of like what parents do when they're teaching their kids to read. Uh, sometimes, you no. Know, sometimes some parents don't, you know, don't work with their kids at all. Some parents will just let schools do it. But a lot of parents will sit with their kids every night and go through books, and they're trying to push their kids, you know, slightly outside of their comfort zone every night and have them try a word that maybe a little bit, you know, is possible that they haven't read before. And you do, I do the same thing with independent skills with my kids, and so every day when we ride our bikes to school with my, with my uh, eight-year-old, six-year-old, I'm asking them, you take the lead this time. And sometimes I'll back off on 100 yards. And, you know, actually, in the past six months, I've let them ride home on their own a few times. I've let them ride to school a few times. Um, but we didn't start that way. We, you know, I'm giving them a little bit more rope almost every day. And and they sometimes fail, and I reprimand them, and you know I, I don't give them too much rope. I give them a little rope. Um, and but it's just like reading; they get better if you give them more, uh, you know, more capability to do things on their own. If you push them a little bit, and they start to gain confidence, and they start to like to have that that freedom to do things on their own. I really appreciate that example you have about riding bikes to school with your children. I, I am interested in how these ideas inform uh, other aspects of your parenting. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about, like, what kinds of rules do you have at your house? Or how do you involve yourself at your children's school? Yeah, so um, as far as rules of the house, um, there's so much to say, but... Um, I guess I would say uh, we we try to we try to have our kids 
um, sort of manage their own play uh, and manage their own play things and put things away. I guess it's kind of Montessori-like, um, but it's in a much bigger setting. It's not this controlled environment, um, you know, that sort of has to come together and come apart every day. It's not just our inside of our house. It's the outside world. It's it's other people's yards. It's other it's interactions with neighbors. Um, and so we're we're really um, we have an open door. We uh, literally every day after school, our front door gets open, our garage gets open. Kids are in and out. Not only our kids, but other kids. And um, we're really trying to have our kids manage themselves and their friends and their playthings. I definitely. I am not uh, a fan of the notion that that parents should be, uh, if you will, teachers helpers at home. Um, I believe that we do we do education at home. Not that we're homeschoolers, but we do education at home, and school does education in school, and those are different things. Uh, I think I think the prevailing attitude these days is that schools home is an extension of school, and so you know the the, the idea that parents go through their children's book bag when the kids come home and find out what the teacher wants the kids to do at home. And then it's the parents do that with the kids. Uh, we, 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 I totally reject that. Um, I believe that, you know, first of all, I'm, 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 I'm not a fan of homework uh, for, for the elementary grades, particularly the early elementary grades. Um, and, uh, we do very interesting educational things at home. And, um, you know, if it all works out, we provide our kids another kind of educational setting at home, at home then school provides, and they complement each other, but they're different. And so I, I do talk to our, my kids' uh, teachers a lot. I'm much more likely to talk to my kids' teachers about, about um, social issues, uh, about character, than I am about academics. Um, and when I talk about academics, it's, always, it's often in the context of their character. You know, so... Uh, if it's about homework, it's about taking responsibility and owning up to responsibility and being honest rather than, you know, actually, you know, the, the, the grind of doing the work. Um, and um, I'd like to help out in class. I'd like to uh, not just help out as a, uh, you know, as a teacher's aide, but, you know, uh, offer, uh, you know, a, a talk or a lecture or um, a demonstration about something that I can provide. But I really think that the educational experience of school is, the teachers are in charge, but I think we're, we should be in charge at home. We should not be uh, working for teachers when the kids come home at night. You mentioned earlier, uh, kind of just describing the the ups and downs. Kid, you're letting your kids figure these things out on their own. Um, so I imagine your your house can be uh, messier than a house where a parent is uh, exerting more control over what her child does. Uh, have you ever had any second thoughts um, about uh, the way you're doing things? Um, yeah, very interesting question. I mean, uh, sure, we have second thoughts a lot. Um, I think that we, for instance, uh, lately have, have finally been uh, getting through to our kids about cleaning up after themselves, um, about um, just sort of, uh, you know, the benefits of preparing their environment so that they can do more, they can be more productive at home. Um, and we, we, you know, we, we, we get criticized that everybody, you know, is, is every parent has their own way of doing things. Um, they're, they're critical of each other. Um, yeah. it's, it's, and our kids, you know, sometimes, you know, they go to other people's houses and, 
and our kids act a little differently. And or especially, it's not so much when they go to other people's houses, but when we go out, uh, we go out to a restaurant. Our kids, uh, you know, we're not as demanding about you know staying at the table. A lot of parents will give their kids um, an iPad or a Game Boy. And, you know, that's, that's fine. You can sit there at the dinner table. Um, our kids are more likely to get up and make up their own game. Um, we feel like, however, you know, that, that can be a pain, but um, we feel like our kids are, are doing well, and, and, and it's sort of an investment that we, mm-hmm. we put in. In other words, that, that for a, a lot of extra time and attention and pain, if you will, at the early years, uh, as they get older, they actually sort of, we get dividends back that they start to figure things out on their, on their own, that they start to um, sort of, you know, make impressive the decisions that are impressive to us on their own because they understand how to do things on their own. Whereas if we had been making decisions for them and controlling them, they might have, you know, they, they may sort of, you know, kind of try to break out and, and do things that, that really upset us later on. Yeah, it, it sounds like you have to be in it for the long haul. Yeah. Well, Mike, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you one more question, and that's uh, what, what are you working on now, and how can we follow your work? Well, I um, wrote the book Flavorhood, and, and I've done a lot of public speaking about it, and uh, actually put another book on the drawing board, and it's uh, it's on hold. Uh what I've decided to do, uh, a lot of things that I, I, I could do, so it's always hard to decide, but what I've decided to do is, is get back to my old, my roots of uh, software development, but combine that with my interest in flavorhood uh, and flavorhood uh, concepts to um, build a couple mobile apps. Um, I have one that's on the App Store today, um, another that I'm working on. Uh, both mobile apps are uh, facilitate people's um, exploration of their their local environment, uh, their immersion in the local environment. So it, it does what it, kind of what I alluded to before, both apps, of um, not taking us away from our world, but actually making us appreciate and, and increasing our interest in, in the physical world around us. So uh, one app is called Beaconeering, B-E-A-C-O-N-E-R-I-N-G. It's an iOS app or an iPhone app, and it is a treasure hunting game kind of like geocaching, but uh, kind of new and, and different. And it, it's for for uh, people, including kids, including teenagers, who have an, a strong interest in the social social networking, but also want to explore the real world, want to combine those two things. Uh, the second app is not announced and not, not out in the world. It's a, it's a map-based photo sharing app, um, kind of like Instagram, but for... Um, exploring places and taking photos of places and exploring those places through photos. Um, so both of those, I would really, I'm really inspired by Flavorhood. Um, but it's 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 going back to my roots of of uh, of uh, software development applied toward uh, neighborhood exploration and real world exploration. Uh, the new one, I, I, the, the the tentative name is called Streetography. S T R E T O G R A P H Y. And um, it should be out uh, by the fall, and uh, I think it should be exciting. Uh, the name of the company, and, and I'm not really emphasizing the company, is Flavorhood. So it's, it's the same as the name of the book. 
Those sound like great projects, Mike. And so we'll uh, we'll look for those in the App Store. Um, I want to okay. thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much, Trevor. I really appreciate it.